Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, what if I told you that you were not allowed to say anything bad about Dan Mullen on this podcast today? Uh, I would go mute, Connor. I would just mute myself and let you have a podcast today. That's fair. That's perfectly fair. We have a lot of Mullen things to get to. We have a lot of Florida, Georgia, Georgia, Florida, cocktail party things that we're going to get to. I was in Jacksonville for that game, the very one-sided game. It turned out to be a lot of things that I, I took away from, from that experience. And shout out to, to my guy, Candler, who had the hookup in, in the suite. It was just absolutely awesome. It was so much fun to be able to do that and to, to get back and, and see those guys again for the first time in a couple of years. Really had a blast there. Um, but so many different Florida and Georgia takes that we're gonna have. I know it was quality over quantity weekend in the SEC. We are still going to go through the other three games and what it meant, you know, for Matt Corral, Heisman stuff, what it means for Auburn, New Year's Six, all those different things. And then we're going to do a little bit of playoff rankings at the end, predictions for playoff rankings because Tuesday ranking show is going to be a mess. It's going to be a you know what show. Uh, it, it's going to be just everybody getting mad at each other, nobody having a clear idea what in the world is going on, and I'll explain kind of why that's the case. But we're just going to still try and predict the top 10 rankings because that's what we do here. We just make random predictions and hope they stick. Although this was like the weekend in which my predictions sucked. I mean, they absolutely sucked. I know I because I had predicted Vandy to beat Mizzou, which didn't happen. I guess Vandy covered, so that kind of counts. But... I was way off on, on Kentucky, Mississippi State. I was way off on Ole Miss and Auburn. So your boy had himself. And then, of course, Oregon, lock of the week. They went <laughs> by 23 instead of 24. Of course. How about they went that? Again, 52 to 29, and they don't cover. So we're back in 500 there. But Joe Moorhead must still, have been doing some insider trading there. He must listen to the pod, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to make this guy, Connor, look like a fool on this day and not cover by one point. They actually scored a touchdown at the end, and I thought to myself, because they went, if they had gone for two, they would have covered 23 and a half. Did you like, they, hurriedly they speed to your phone and try to text Joe Moorhead and be like, please, go for two, please? I thought about it. I thought about it. I've been trying to only send him a, send him a DM if it's like a, a well wish or something like mm -hmm. that. Like, hey, glad to hear you're back healthy again after having emergency surgery. Not like, hey, could you go for two right now? and make sure that my lock of the week covers. Been trying to leave it to just the, the more serious stuff, so. Fair. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, it was a great weekend nonetheless. But before we talk about all of those things, so like I said, had an excellent time in Jacksonville, was, was just one of those situations where you walk into, if you've ever experienced a, a suite at a sporting event, Sometimes you walk in, it's just kind of like burgers and dogs and popcorn and stuff. You're like, all right, this is cool. I basically just like don't have to go to concessions. This was like, different level type of stuff. Sushi, hibachi, um, street tacos, pizza, burgers, bratz dogs, all that other stuff as well. Um, they, they literally had a hibachi guy like that, that came in and made all the stuff fresh, which was pretty incredible, the smells that came from that. The only thing that could have made it better, and trust me, I was not complaining by any stretch of the imagination, but I had a thought. I'm like, you know, some Texas Pete here would be pretty cool right about now didn't have the Texas Pete hookup in the suite, the full array of Texas Pete. That was basically the only thing that they that they were lacking in there. 
As I've said so, so many times on this podcast, this is the perfect time of year to load up on Texas Pete, not only because it's football season, but also because right now for our listeners, you can go to texaspeat.com, you get recipes, you get t-shirts, you get hats, you get hot sauces by the box. And if you do that, you get 20% off your entire order with the promo code Saturday Down South. That is all one word, all caps, Saturday Down South. That's all you gotta do, texaspeat.com, Saturday Down South, sauce like you mean it. All right, Will. Jacksonville, I, I'm I'm not I'm not going to be one of those people that that throws shade at Jacksonville, and I feel like I've been guilty of that in the past, and I hate it when people throw shade at a place that they've never been to, and maybe that's just because of watching the Good Place and watching Jason and the way that he has talked about Jacksonville. But Jacksonville's great, and I love I love a city on the water, and it was fantastic. I split my day half in the suite, half in the press box, and I was glad that I watched the first half in the suite surrounded by Georgia fans. Mm-hmm. It would have been really depressing to be surrounded by Florida fans. The way that that first half played out. Come the on, guys. Yo, guys. Oh, guys, this is... The, oh. <laughs> oh. I, I have never seen something quite like that. Where all of a sudden, it just felt like on a dime. It just totally flipped. And credit Georgia because you give Georgia an inch, they take a mile. That's what they do. But the final 216 of the first half, in case you missed it, Florida had the ball down three to nothing with 216 left. Then we get the Anthony Richardson fumble, which watching that, and that was on the far side from where we were, we were in the other corner. But I, I assumed that they had blown it dead. And there were a lot of Florida fans kind of frustrated that they didn't blow it dead for forward progress. But that's a double-edged sword because then they're like, well, why would you whistle that dead if he's driving the pile and he's got five guys around him? It's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And it's just one of those things where it's almost impossible to review because we never review for when a whistle is is blown. For whatever reason, we don't do that in this day and age. Nonetheless, it was still ruled a fumble and we're still all of a sudden like, oh crap, George is gonna take over and they're probably gonna score. And then sure enough, James Cook, very next play, scores. Then you get the quick interception on the very next series. So the bizarre thing about this, and Will, we were talking about this before we came on air, is that Mullen got blasted for sitting on his timeouts in the end of the first half against Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And he took it on the chin for that. Florida fans were not happy. It's like, you don't think you can score against Kentucky with all the time in the world to at least get a field goal. And so this time he's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna try and see what I can get against this Georgia defense. And it bid him badly, real badly. The Nolan Smith interception on that tipped pass where Anthony Richardson, if you're gonna be off target, you can't be off target in the middle of the field, especially in a defense that is as good at creating those those havoc plays as Georgia is. Sure enough, Nolan Smith gets the gets the interception. You mm-hmm. get that that play from from the 36 where Stetson, Stetson Bennett, who started and, by the way, played this entire game, JT Daniels didn't play in this game, he threw his best ball of the day to Kiaris Jackson, just a dime yeah. into the end zone. And that, that, that's the type of play where if he doesn't make that throw, Georgia fans are probably still like, ah, you know, JT Daniels would have been nice to be able to see him in the second half of that game. Good for Kiaris Jackson, who has slowly been working his way back. Last year's leading receiver, he finally gets a big time play. And that felt like a dagger at 17-0, right? But then, of course, the but real wait, dagger. There's more. There's always more. The dagger that Florida was just not going to be able to overcome, no matter what, with a minute and a half, 
trying to steal some points again at the end of the first half, just trying to get some high percentage type throws. But when you have a guy with limited reps like Anthony Richardson, and not to make excuses for him, but he's going to make mistakes. We talked about that going in. It's not that he's gonna play mistake-free football, it's that you would like to be able to kind of get that out of his system now, as opposed to a fourth-year guy in Emory Jones. Richardson predetermined that he's gonna hit Malik Davis. Mm-hmm. Throw to the far side of the field, really long throw in that spot because, hey, when you've got a linebacker matched up on him, maybe you're thinking you're in a favorable spot. Nicobe Dean had that play one in the film room and he jumps the route and it's a pick six just like that. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, it is 24 to nothing. Georgia is going into half and this five minutes ago was three to nothing and it felt like a competitive football game baffling to see that will i i don't i don't i can't recall a half that has turned so quickly to where it went from being three to nothing to all of a sudden like oh this game's over before halftime like that it was weird it was so weird yeah i mean it's weird because like you could really like in the first half and specifically the first quarter it felt like florida was like really putting up a fight like i was like man i'm really impressed by their defense i'm really impressed by how they're not getting gashed because obviously you know georgia went down the field on that first drive uh, and they had like that bizarre play where they got uh, intentional grounding on third and one, which became fourth and 10. Uh, and then it was like, well, like Georgia probably would have just gone for that and pushed the pile forward for a yard. But then that flag took them back to fourth and 10. They missed like this, what felt like a chip shot field goal. Apparently it was 46 yards. But at the time it was like, oh, this will be easy points. And it felt like the air came out of the stadium after they missed this field goal. And then, you know, Florida goes right back down. And it's like, oh, wow, this is like this classic rivalry game. And exactly what you said, I mean, it was just... I hate to say it was even a play calling decision, but you just got to read the room. And and to your point about like the clock management, and, and I made this point about Anthony Richardson, it's like, it's almost like Mullen just kind of lacked all context. It was like, oh, oh, you guys want me to do this at the end of the half? Fine, here it is. Oh, you guys want me to start Anthony Richardson? Okay, fine, here it is. And it's like, okay, doing those things against Georgia isn't like doing those things against any other team. Any yep. other team, like you could gone, you could have gone a week ago. You could have done that. I mean, he basically did against LSU. He he had the, the leash on uh, Emory right coming out of the half, and like we all thought that was a good decision at the time. The issue is that like this isn't the game where you should kind of figure some stuff out. Like who you are as a football team going into number one ranked Georgia in Jacksonville. That's who you are. It's not time to you know throw out the old playbook and go for some gimmicks. And like yeah, I mean, and then like the clock management thing. It's like. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this. It's like the Kobe Dean ran that in with seven seconds left on the game clock. And like, I know, you know what I'm saying, that you got to run some offense. But yeah, like, I just rewatched that throw and it's like, man, exactly what you said. Long throw. That was like, Long I mean, throw. a trebuchet coming out of his arm. And it's this comeback route that you got to be just on the same page as the receiver, especially in that spot. I don't even know why you make that decision. I don't even, I don't think it's a play calling thing because I'm sure there are other options to go to in that play. But it's like, Rewatching that, it was like a like a late career Drew Brees pass. It was so slow coming through the air, and the Kobe Dean was just, oh, this is mine, got it. And so yeah, it's like I just I I want to be fair, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, it's like why are you calling that play? Why are you? What about that moment? Like okay, let's say he catches that ball and falls forward for five yards. Then what do you do? Go yeah, into you're the still half. in bounds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you go into the half at that point. Like so, it's just a very like not understanding the nuance, not understanding like, uh, it's almost like a, we've talked about this team has taken on Mullen's kind of vibe of like, you know, arrogance and like, hey, 
guess what? I'll give you a stat. I'm here to tell you right now, Connor. Hot off the presses. UGA, 354 yards of total offense. Florida, 355. They got Dan on the last Mullen, play, too. Still yeah. undefeated by one yard a roof, folks. Unbelievable to win the total yards advantage. Somebody at in the postgame presser asked him, like, they, they, they slid in there that Florida won the total yards advantage, but it didn't warrant a response. Unfortunately, we didn't get that peak Mullen moment. Real, real quick on the on the Georgia defense, because we're, we're definitely going to get to more Mullen things on the Florida side than we are probably Georgia, because this kind of just confirmed a lot of the things that we, we knew about Georgia. Seeing the defense in person, it's, it's ridiculous because... Again, they, they don't miss tackles. That's not news. The speed is so noticeable when you see these little running lanes that you think are there, and then the closing speed is just like, they swallow these holes. I mean, that, that, that's what they do. It's just they take space away in such a unique, uh, disciplined manner. And, and I said going into this one that if they allow an average of a touchdown per game the rest of the way, that, that, that'll best the 2011 Alabama defense for the best real scoring defense of the 21st century if we take away the non-offensive touchdowns, which you have to do. They, were, mm -hmm. they had only allowed 39 points coming into this game. It wasn't 46 because everybody wants to count the UAB pick six. That, that in this game is, so that, that, that still played out. Georgia's still on that historic pace. Kirby Smart's last regular season hurdle is now at Tennessee in a couple of weeks, which will be interesting because Tennessee is going to test them offensively in a way that Florida was not able to do with stretching the field. No offense, but um, Mizzou might allow 400 rushing yards to Georgia before it even steps on the field. So take that for what it is. That's not going to be a challenge for Georgia. Um, also, real quick, I wanted to hit on the JT Daniels part of this because it kind of gets lost in the shuffle when you beat a rival 34-7 to like that. I thought we were going to see JT out there. I really did. And I thought that Kirby was going to take a page out of Mullen's playbook and we were going to see some JT in the first half. And I think Georgia fans, even after the first quarter, they're like, all right, when's JT coming in? When's he coming in? Um, and that might just be the feeling with Stetson moving forward that he's going to be QB1 until he has a Jalen Hurts 2017 National Championship-like first half, and they decide, ah, you know what, we need a little bit something different right now, we're going to change things up. But I found myself almost wanting to see a 3-0 halftime score to see if JT Daniels would have played in that game. That would have been interesting because that would have pushed Kirby into that tough decision to have to make where... If you're up 24 nothing going into the half, you don't have to make that decision. You really don't. Oh, you're a masochist dog. You wanted to see Kirby make a QB decision on national TV? Yes. That, is, yes, some, that is some mean stuff right there, bud. Yes. Um, I, I thought the throw, the, again, the throw to Kiaris Jackson sort of prevented that from happening. That was what really pushed it over the top, and that was going to be his day to finish. But, yeah, very interesting to see the way that that played out. All right. The Florida side. This was ugly. And they nearly, Georgia nearly pitched the shutout. And Florida, as we found out during this game, had the streak of 417 games in a row scoring points. Hadn't been shut out since 1988. And they finally are able to score at, at the end of the game, score, score a late touchdown. But they missed a 23-yard field goal in the third quarter. And I just couldn't help but wonder... Did Dan Mullen know about that when he attempted a 23-yard field goal down 24 to nothing inside the UGA 10-yard line? I don't know. 
definitively if Mullen knew or if he didn't know. But that call was bizarre because you had already gone for it on fourth and 13 earlier in the game, albeit on the 34 yard line, a bit of no man's land. Oh but gosh, that was then a, you yeah. don't go for it there. Look, that to me was just like Mullen wanted to, th- that's trying to escape the optics. I used to blast James Franklin for doing stuff like that all the time, where it'd be like 31 to nothing, and his team has fourth and two on the six yard line, and he's like, get the field goal team out there, gotta get points here, no matter what, just because you don't want that zero next to your name. You didn't want to be the coach who all of a sudden ended that streak, a streak that Ron Zook, Will Muschamp, Jim McElwain somehow were able to get by, even though Jim McElwain had the 27-2 to loss to Florida State back in 2015, and that should probably still count as a shutout, but whatever the case. This is the new podium topic, is that like points scored on the offense don't like shouldn't count. Yes, agreed, 100%. Dan Mullen is nobody to blame for that game but himself. So as we brought up, the Anthony Richardson decision to start him and play him the whole game until he got hurt. He actually, you know, that was the surprising thing is Mullen said, you know, we're gonna gonna play both quarterbacks. And then he actually didn't turn to Emory until Richardson signaled to come out of the game and he goes into the injury tent. We'll kind of wait and see how that plays out. This shouldn't have been Anthony Richardson's first start. It just shouldn't have because that's not fair to go against the defense that good in your first start. And obviously he's had reps and we're not making excuses because he had a lot of plays that he wished he could have had back, I'm sure. But the first start definitely should have come sooner. Mullen's stubbornness led to that. And there's no way around it. There's no way getting around the fact that the better player was on the bench. And it took Saturday playing out to be like, all right, well, yeah, we we knew going in that playing Emory versus playing Anthony Richardson, that wasn't that decision to start one or the other wasn't going to be the difference in the game. Mullen actually helped himself in the optics there because if you had played Emory Jones, the majority of the refs and lost that game 34 to seven, buddy, the pitchforks would be out even more. They absolutely would. They weren't winning that game no matter who started at quarterback, but the the. At the same time, Mullen had a weird day as usual. Damian Pierce was phenomenal in this football game. That's he had fact. a 19-yard run in the first half. 19-yard run was, this is a Georgia defense that hadn't allowed a 20-yard run to an SEC, to an SEC ball carrier the entire year. All right, so getting a 19-yard gain against that Georgia defense is a big deal. He only had three carries in the first half. He had nine total. He gets, Mullen gets asked after the game, like, you know, like, why didn't Damian Pierce get more work early? Why, why wasn't that a bigger part of the game plan? And Mullen's just like, yeah, I thought he ran hard. Thought he ran hard. There were moments of Mullen's post-game presser where you saw the accountability, and then there were moments like that where he's still not willing to look in the mirror and be like, I needed to get that, the guy the football more, and that's on me as a play caller. I need to do a better job. And if you don't think play callers can be honest and accountable, you're out of your mind because I've heard plenty of them be accountable before. And I, I don't think it's a far cry to say, yeah, a guy who had the hot hand should have gotten the football more on a day in which we couldn't score points. But the thing that Mullen really got ripped for was the answer to the question about whether there was a talent gap between Georgia and Florida. And it was Matt Baker, the Tampa Bay Times, who asked this. And Mullen basically kind of spun it back and said, well, you know, we won last year and they won this year. 
and then basically like tried to get him to, to answer this question. And he didn't really take the, you know, Matt Baker didn't really take the bait on this. But that really wasn't a debate. And this isn't a debate about the talent level. <laughs> it's not a back and forth, hey, I get one, then you get one type of thing. Right. Georgia, by virtue of Kentucky also losing on Saturday, just clinched its fourth SEC's title in the last five years. It's the third in four years that Mullen has been at Florida. They just suffered the worst loss to, to Georgia since 2017, which was Jim McElwain's last game at Florida. It was pretty obvious there who the more talented team was. And don't give me that total yard stat because Florida did not have much of a chance to score in that football game. They just didn't. And when you see guys like Nolan Smith, who Nolan Smith had started like one game before this year, former number one overall player in the country in 2019, and he creates two turnovers in a span of like 15 seconds in that football game. Meanwhile, Florida's like, hey, we don't have those five stars on either side of the ball. We don't have those game changers who can just totally flip a game like that. Edgar Thompson of the Orlando Sentinel asked Mullen if he thought he was at a bit of a crossroads. And that's a tough question to answer for a head coach. And Mullen didn't really know how to answer it. <laughs> but it is a crossroads, mm -hmm. right? This, this is very much a crossroads because if this falls apart, Dan Mullen absolutely could have his job on the line. There's no doubt about it, in my opinion. He's going to be favored probably in his last four games at South Carolina, against Samford, at Mizzou, at home against Florida State. Buddy, if he loses one of those games, you think yikes. one does it? I, I'm saying it's on the table. I am saying it's on the table based on how he has handled this team in year four. In year four, to be at this stage where it is so obvious the talent gap, and you watch the way that Georgia can just dominate these teams and didn't even need necessarily an offense. Meanwhile, Dan Mullen and the quarterbacks that he has developed, this is not working with this team. They don't have those receivers on the outside. They don't have that impose your will type of defense. It can have good moments, but the guy that he ultimately brought back for year four is the defensive coordinator, Todd Grantham. You know, he's not at that elite level. He's just not going to, to suffocate you. And Grantham wasn't even to blame for that game. And that's probably even worse for Mullen. But I have no idea what to expect. I have no idea. It's, it's the first time that they won't be competing for a top 10 ranking or a New Year's Six Bowl in November since Mullen took over. Mullen, I don't think, is in the clear. And if you're Scott Strickland, you have to wonder, is this really the guy? Because you need to give your fans hope, and they don't have much at all right now. What's the future? Where are the reinforcements coming if you're being criticized for the way that you're recruiting like that and you're watching Georgia do what it's doing right now? Can we trust... Dan Bullen to develop and recruit an SEC champ because that's the Gator standard. I mean, is it though? I mean, that's really the question that you ask yourself, right? I mean, the question you ask yourself is what is the Gator standard? If the Gator standard is avoiding falling apart and avoiding the, you know, two four-win seasons, they had a four-win season under Muschamp and a four-win season under McElwain, Mullen's never going to have that <clears throat> because his offense has proven that it will beat up on bad teams. So you're never going to, I mean, I don't know, but... Logically, you're never going to lose to, you know, Georgia Southern. You're never going to have these embarrassing losses that they'd had in the past. So on that side, the floor of the Gator standard is much higher under Mullen. On the other side, the ceiling is what it is. And, like, I'm not Mr. Like, takes guy or whatever. Basically, from year one, I've been saying this is exactly who this guy is. And it's become more and more apparent as, hilariously enough, McElwain's players have gotten out of there. Now, you look at Jim McElwain as this goofy guy with the teeth everybody made fun of and thought that Florida fans thought they were too good for him. 
They really did. The entire time he was there, he had two SEC championship appearances, which they threw dirt on, right? Mullen does it one time during a COVID year, and suddenly he's the next coming of Steve Spurrier. But you look at these players that McIlwain recruited, right? I mean, Trask, Pitts, he had Jamar Chase committed. He had Matt he had Corral committed. Too. Yep. Like, he, if, if Mullen had even just hung on to those guys in Corral and Chase, that's a championship team. You know what I'm saying? And so you look kind of across the aisle, like you said, <clears throat> at Georgia. And this is years and years of drinking the Kool-Aid, man. This is years and years of, oh, we don't need recruiting. We don't need, it's fine. And I talked to, hilariously enough, I talked to UCF fans about this when they had Josh Heupel. And I was like, you guys know you should do better than this, right? Like, there isn't a conspiracy against you with 24-7. 24-7 doesn't wake up in the morning. And you know this, you've been in the news business. These agendas that people think exist, don't. There isn't someone downgrading five stars because they go to Florida. Gravon Dexter was a five star, all right? Mullen just can't get them. He's having guys like Dabo and all the stuff he has going on coming to Florida and get five stars. And the funny thing is you look at a guy like Brenton Cox, who at the time Florida fans were, you know, painting Kirby as the stooge for losing him. Where does Brenton Cox play on this Georgia defense? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's fair because that Georgia front is, is nasty and Jalen Carter had himself another moment where you're just reminded that people at 300 pounds shouldn't be able to do the things that he's capable of doing. It is, it still goes back to the same thing. When we talked about this, it's cliche at this point, it's been well documented, but nobody could watch that play out yesterday and from start to finish, post game press conference, all that stuff. Mullen's just not wired like Kirby. You see Kirby losing his mind with two minutes left in that game as Florida's about to score. Kirby has depth. He develops that depth for days. And that's not to say he's by any means a perfect head coach. And if he finds a way to not win a national championship this year, we're going to have plenty of things to say about whether or not the in-game stuff is ever going to match up to the level of talent that he's brought into that program. But there is such a, a noticeable difference in the way that those guys are wired. Because mm -hmm. picture, picture if... Picture if Kirby lost the game 34 to 7 and how he would have been in that post-game presser. And if he would have been distraught about the level that his team was at. And if he would have said, you know, there are positives, there are negatives to take from that game, blah, blah, blah. And if he's telling you about, you know, I thought we did some things well. And, you know, Kirby's not wired like that. He's just not. And that's what it takes to be at this level. I, I firmly believe that firmly believe that and you have to be able to make tough decisions even ryan day it's like ryan day you know after the after the oregon game i think it was where he decides oh Kerry coombs this guy who's been in ohio state and he's forever and he's like the defensive coordinator that people have loved you're not calling plays anymore mid-season i'm going to make that change and i'm going to i'm going to have a different defensive staffer calling plays for us and being able to make that those tough decisions where Mullen just wants to dig his heels in even more. And Kirby doesn't care if you're, like I said, with Nolan Smith, number one overall player in his first two years, he's a rotation guy for Georgia. Yep. He's like, you know what? We got we got too many guys. You're, you're not you're not playing on this team unless you earn it and unless you are are making that big of a difference. And they they find a way to make it work. And you see just how lopsided it is, in my opinion. And I think that there was, there there was just it was it was very noticeable at some key moments yesterday, and Georgia's on a different level right now than Florida. It's as simple as that. Luckily for you, you're talking to an LSU fan, so I know exactly what Georgia has lost by such a margin, and it was the SEC championship game, very close. And I remember after that game, Kirby was not fun to be around. 
I remember me and you were joking about how angry Kirby was after that game and how he felt like that performance against LSU in 2019 didn't fit his standard. And look what he did. That was, you know, that was the Jake Fromm game. He went out and he got Todd Munkin, right? He changed the whole offense. Now, granted, he's still starting Stetson Benson. Stetson Bennett, what a strange name. Gosh, this guy is such a legend. How is he still here? Anyway, so I'm sorry. It's just, you gotta look in the mirror and have fun every once in a while and realize um, that that's still happening. But yeah, he, he redid his whole offense. He redid how he did everything. <clears throat> and credit to him. And I'll say this, you know, like I said, it's poetic in a way that like all these jokes and, and back and forth that Florida fans have kind of beaten Georgia fans over the head with. It's like, you go into this game, both teams have a quarterback controversy, right? Georgia has, you know, uh, JT Daniels, who is coming off this injury, and everyone knows who he is. He's a five-star guy. He's, you know, this missile. He's the secret weapon. And Kirby looks at his team, and he goes, you know what? We don't need that. We can beat Florida without that. We don't need to mess up our chemistry. We are who we are. We're going to go into this big rivalry game. We don't care what Dan Mullen throws at us. This is our team. Now, like you said, if it was a close game, maybe we're having a different discussion. doesn't matter because it wasn't a close game. Like Kanye West said, people ask, what would happen if I didn't win? Guess we'll never know. That's what happened to Stetson Bennett. So at the end of the day, you look across the aisle, you look at Mullen, and it's him saying over and over again, oh, Emory's our guy. You guys are, you know, dolts for thinking that we're, there's another word for you, Connor. You guys are dolts for thinking that, that we're going to go away from Emory. And then the last second, he goes with AR. And guess what? That wasn't the problem. You know what I'm saying? He got kind of shamed into playing a quarterback that he didn't want to play. The dude, I'm not going to say he got exposed, but like you said, it wasn't the right time to start him. He could have started him next game, could have started him last game, could have started him against LSU. This was objectively a bad quarterback decision by Mullen. And if you're a Florida fan, at this point, all you have to hang on to is that our guy is a QB whisperer and Kirby is this QB idiot. That's the problem. Yep. That's exactly the problem. And... You, you wonder what the future looks like. You, you, if, if you've seen the strength, is Mullen ever going to develop a strength as good as the strength that Kirby has developed this year with his 2021 defense? Because that's what it takes. And if that's the peak last year, if Mullen's strength was that Florida offense last year that had all those pieces, some generational pieces, might I add, and if that team was eight and four, man, I... That, that's a, a tough thing to have to to have to wonder about if you're Scott Strickland, who now your head coach is two and six against the likes of Georgia, LSU, Alabama, the teams that are consistently recruiting better than your team. And you're two and seven in your last nine games against power five competition. That's that's the one there where if that continues, if 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 all of a sudden you're you're staring at that, you know, you go two and two in that stretch to end the season, buddy. It's going to be an interesting month in Gainesville, needless to say. But let's let's move on. Um, so dead wrong about this one. Dead dead wrong. Auburn beat up on Ole Miss, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tip my cap to Auburn and say once again for the third time in the last four games that I just misfired on them, underestimating them. Owen Popo back was something that I should have paid more attention to when talking about this game in the preview because he just brings that extra bit of juice that they need in the middle of that defense. I mean, he's the guy who is such an emotional leader. He and Zacoby <coughs> are so important for what they want to do. And Derek Mason, I have not given him enough credit for the year that he is having on that side of the ball. All of Auburn's four SEC opponents scored fewer than their season average. And with Smoke Monday on the back end, they have proved to be, they, they ultimately proved to be a bad matchup for an Ole Miss offense that had two walk-ons as the leading pass catchers. 
I'm going to say this because I don't want it to take away from anything that, that Auburn did on Saturday night, which was impressive in beating a top 10 team at home. Ole Miss is not at maximum capacity, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because we saw how fun it is when they are at maximum capacity. Clipboards are flying, popcorn-worthy stuff, right? But in addition to Braylon Sanders and Jonathan Mingo being out, Dontario Drummond was banged up in this one. And obviously, Corral. The way that he reacted in the first half, you and I both kind of were like, crap. Yeah. Week to week. I even had the thought creep into my mind, if Corral's ankle just let him down, there's a chance that that could be the last play we see him make in college. And that made me really sad. But as we often say on this here podcast, Matt Corral is a piece of iron. He doesn't break. Goes to the locker room, rubs some dirt on it, maybe popped a pill, got some tape, boom, he was out there. That's that's the way that he is wired. He and, had a rushing touchdown after that. And it was pretty impressive too, because it looked like it was not it was not a run by design on that play. And he was able to still use those legs and find a way to get into the end zone, which is miraculous considering what he looked like earlier in that game. And he did not make any excuses for his performance afterwards. He had a, a very 2020-like interception that he threw in the end zone, just a play that you can't make. Didn't, didn't point to his ankle or anything, said he took all the blame for that loss. That's the accountability that you like from your leader. And he said it's... If I'm out there, I need to be at my full maximum self, and it's not good enough to say that, oh, I had an ankle or, or whatever. So I like seeing that from him. If I'm an Ole Miss fan, I'm encouraged about the last month of the season knowing that that guy is going to be out there no matter what. He is going to find a way to play on the football field, and he's. I would be shocked if Corral enters the opt-out conversation or anything like that at any point the rest of the way. I don't know if Ole Miss wins that game at full health because with the way that Auburn is playing, mm-hmm. man, I just thought that game on uh, that game was everything Brian Harson could have hoped for coming into this year. Your two hires that you make, your pretty big time coordinator hires with Derek Mason and Mike Bobo, both called fantastic games. Yep, Tank Bigsby looked like Tank Bigsby. I thought they could have taken advantage of, of the way he was running even a little bit more down the stretch. And Bonex, man, he continues to play at an all-SEC level. I thought we'd see him run for his life a, a few times with Ole Miss coming off of its best two-game stretch defensively of the Kiffin era, and that did not happen. Mm-hmm. Bonex knows when to run and when to do the NCAA 14 thing where you run in a totally stupid direction behind the line of scrimmage because only losers take sacks. So you <laughs> run in the most nonsensical pattern possible to try and free yourself up. And he does that, and he still is able to, even if it's just like a five-yard gain, he turns what could be like a 20-yard loss into a five-yard gain. And I've watched Bonix do that so many times in his career that it'd be weird to one day think that that won't be a Saturday staple. But I was thinking about this too, because it's no longer a week-to-week thing with Bonix. I think Bonix is just good in this offense. He's got two years of eligibility left after this one. Sure does, Connor. I am suddenly super intrigued by what this offense could actually be once they get receivers. Because Georgia's six wide out is their top guy right now, Demetrius Robertson. Yeah. They're gonna get more talent at that position. I have to think that they will. And maybe that's through the transfer portal. They're gonna keep doing it that way. Maybe some of the younger guys that they've developed. So they do have some young four-star guys. We'll see how that plays out. But think about this too. 
we know that Tank and Hunter are going to be playing together for at least another year in that offense. Auburn's future all of a sudden looks really good. Really good. And I, I just I think this team is legit. I'll be very interested in what the selection committee does with them. And if they are, I'm assuming they're going to be the top-ranked two-loss team because they have like an outside sneaky case to be that number 10 team. Losses to Georgia and at Penn State, but they beat number 10 Ole Miss and then went on the road and beat Arkansas, beat LSU. Again, not teams that are currently in the top 25, but still, I, I'd argue like halfway decent wins in the well, they way were, in which like, they happened. They were like underdogs in both of those games. So at the time, that, that matters, yeah. So Auburn could sneak into the top 10 of a playoff rankings. They could. Now, if I'm betting, and we'll, you know, spoiler alert, my predictions, I don't quite have them in the top 10, but it's at least a case. And it, it's, it's, it's a total mess, seven. Like basically once you get past seven or eight in the playoff rankings, it's so bad. But Auburn is now the new answer to our favorite weekly question on our Sunday pods. Who is the number two team in the West? Yes. Auburn, not a bad position for Brian Harson to be in heading into November with him technically controlling his own destiny to Atlanta. Now, you still got to be able to get past A&M. You still got to be able to beat Alabama. But still, Will, it's like you say, never doubt Auburn. Yeah, no. And and you're right. We were both like kind of wrong on this one. I, I do think that your breakdown of like, what could have happened in this game was pretty close to what happened because, you know, at the end of the day, like, that almost offense looked not good. And, and, and I 100% want to, okay, let me take a step back. There's the subjective and the objective part of what happened in this game. The objective part is that Auburn just kind of bludgeoned Ole Miss to death. <laughs> Ole Miss never led. There was never really, honestly, a point in this game where you thought, like, yeah, Ole Miss is, like, going to put something together here. Like, Auburn just, if you look at this, like, win probability graph, it's just a slow march into the sea by Auburn. That's objective, right? Subjectively, like you said, a lot of it comes down to injuries, and obviously Auburn's not in a dream situation either. Um, a lot of it comes down to watching Matt Corral out there struggling, and obviously, like you said, full strength is hard to imagine how things would have been, but the team that came out there, I mean, Auburn was just a better team. And uh, we've talked about Ole Miss's defense a little bit. They were pretty disappointing in this game. I feel like Auburn's offensive line manhandled them. Uh, and I feel like, you know, our boy Brodarius Ham, shout out, uh, Thick yeah, King. Yeah, boy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, like this is somehow turned into the exact Auburn team that I grew up watching. It's hilarious. We joke about it over and over again. Never question Auburn. This is an, a nasty Auburn team. This is like, people always want to talk about, you know, Cam Newton and like all these different Auburn teams, whatever. Every Auburn football team that I loved growing up and like going to high school at Hoover was these nasty D-lines. These dudes who could get after the quarterback, these physical teams. And like, and I hate to simplify it like this, but they kind of just out physical Ole Miss. Like they kind of just, they dug in, and Auburn's defense, I think, told the story of the game. And Bo Nix was good. And to say, again, objectively, you could say Ole Miss, or, um, you could say Bo Nix had a better game than Matt Corral, and you'd be telling the truth. Now, you'd have to get into that and say, why was that? A lot of that was Auburn's defense. So, yeah, like, this is kind of turning into, like, a, a complete football team before our eyes. And here we are. We're looking. It's November, and Auburn is right there. <laughs> I don't mean to be to be that guy because I, I I'm bringing this up and we haven't talked about this on this podcast yet because it, it quite frankly I, I don't 
I don't really like digging into a lot of this stuff. People who've listened to this know that I'm, I'm not one of these people who's gonna shame people. I'm not one of those people that's gonna go on both sides of the coin, but the the Brian Harson vaccination stuff is kind of the, the only thing that Auburn fans are left wondering about with the vaccination requirements for for December and what that could potentially mean for him in the next couple months. He's been very private about saying, like, I'm not I'm not sharing that information to the media in terms of, you know, vaccination, whatever. And people have assumed their own their own things about him. Like other than that, though, and I only bring that up to say everything else, if you're an Auburn fan, you should be so encouraged by the way that this has played out since Georgia State, because it could have gone horribly wrong. And for a brief second there, I was kind of like, hey, maybe my five and seven prediction for Auburn, maybe maybe it'll like come close to hitting. And maybe this is gonna end up being like a six and six football team, but you you nailed it. This is becoming a complete team before our eyes. And I don't know what the future holds for Derek Mason. I don't know what it is for Mike Bobo. I kind of think they're both really suited well to be coordinators. We'll see. I've always kind of also thought that Derek Mason would have been intriguing at like a group of five program out West and maybe that's his future. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But Brian Harson has a really solid foundation all of a sudden. Really good. And what if, what if TJ Finley had taken over as a starter and all of a sudden we're talking about a, a, probably a different last month of October because Bo Nix has figured some things out and maybe that was the exact thing that he needed to light that fire under him. And Brian Harson said after the Georgia State game, I hope this pissed off Bo Nix. I hope this is going to get him to that level where he can't come into a football game playing the way that he did, making the mistakes that he made with the football, being careless with some of his reads, deciding that he's not gonna trust the offense. What if Bo Nix had gotten that as a, as a sophomore? What if he had gotten that type of tough love from Gus Malzahn? I can't, I can't help but wonder, and I am now, of the belief that, look, if you're an Auburn fan, you're feeling good about your situation at quarterback moving forward. TJ Finley is still incredibly young. He still has, he still was gonna have, you know, this was year one of his eligibility technically, because last year didn't count. Mm -hmm. And you have a very favorable situation moving forward with what's going to be dubbed probably the best returning backfield in America coming into next year, if Hunter and Bigsby are both healthy and good to go. So good for Auburn because they have turned things around in a hurry. All right. This Iron Bowl is going to be electric. Sorry. I just, maybe it's not. Maybe I'll be able to, I don't know. But this is exactly that kind of Auburn team. You know what I'm saying? Like the teams that were able to kind of like stick in those Iron Bowls, it wasn't because of their quarterbacks. Well, one I'm time more interested now. <laughs> I am I'm way more interested. I said a month ago, Auburn didn't have any chance to win that football game. I'm not saying I would pick them to win that game. We still need to see a little bit more consistency on the defensive side of the ball from Alabama before we say that that game is, is over and done with. But... You're right. It's more intriguing. It's definitely a more intriguing Iron Bowl than what we were previously expecting. Mississippi State. Mississippi State forced a Kentucky turnover relapse game. Little peel behind the onion here. Um, I said in the midweek pod that being at games is awesome, but the biggest downside is that I can't lock into the other games as well when I'm at a game and Mm -hmm. this game was on and I was writing in the press box in Jacksonville while I was streaming the first half. Weird timing of this because I didn't want to be driving back home two hours to Orlando during most of the game. That kind of ended up happening. I was, um, I watched the first half in the press box and then drove home because sick brag, Ross Dellinger and I were the last two people in the press box in Jacksonville. 
I actually listened to like the final 20 minutes of this game on radio, UK Sports Network channel 1530 AM, I think. Um, let, let, me, let me say this. You can hear all the frustration in the voices of the Kentucky announcers because if there was an early season fear with this team, it was that the back to earth game would look exactly like this. And yeah. I, I'll get to the Mississippi State side in a second here because there's a lot of a lot of takeaways from that as well. But the turnovers were back and worse than ever for Kentucky. Minus four in turnover margin for the team who started minus nine in turnover margin there in the first four games yet was somehow still undefeated. I shouldn't say somehow. We know how. When three of those first four games are against Chattanooga, South Carolina, and Mizzou, you mm-hmm. can get away with it. When you're facing Mississippi State in Starkville and Will Rogers is out here completing an SEC single game record 92.3% of his passes, minimum 30 attempts or minimum 30 completions, you can't get away with that. You, you, you just can't. And I was dead wrong about Will Levis. I thought he was going to have a huge night. I thought he was ready to handle pressure well, especially the way that he played against Georgia. thought Wondell Robinson would go off to at least one of these big chunk plays in the passing game. Nope. Will Levis was bad. He was bad. Brutal, brutal play where it's the end of the first half. He's on the 14-yard line. You're down 14 to 10, 14 seconds left in the first half. I said 14 a lot there. Goodness gracious. <laughs> he thinks his guy split out wide is in press coverage. But Zach Arnett, being Zach Arnett, we are big advocates of the 3-3-5, as we know. All day. He had the zone on. And the DB gets a tipped ball. And it turns into this costly interception. And Will Levis is still learning how to avoid those key mistakes, especially on the road against a quality defense. Personally, as the offensive play caller for Kentucky, I take full responsibility for getting out coached in this football game. <laughs> Zach Arnett was better than I was in this game. Uh, C-Rod's usage was weird. I don't know what's going on with that. He had the fumble, but that wasn't until midway through the third quarter. And he really only kind of played sparingly in this one. Go figure that Mississippi State had the rushing advantage against Kentucky. And Mississippi State had three rushing touchdowns to zero on the Kentucky side. It is the first time that Leach's offense had three rushing touchdowns since week two of the 2019 season when he was at Washington State. (laughs) I mean, Mississippi State had the running back carries advantage 31 to 16 in this football game. If you had told me that coming into this this game, I, I would have just, I would have laughed you out of the room. Mississippi State had balance. They had balance. Keep in mind, Mississippi State entered Saturday dead last in FBS with an average of 19 rushing attempts per game. Right. And dare I say, it kind of looked like a, a normal, somewhat balanced offense. You threw the ball basically 40 times instead of 60. <laughs> Unbelievable. I. I was blown away by that because I thought we were just going to pencil Will Rogers in for 60 pass attempts every single game. We talked about that a lot last year. Why can't Leach just be willing to run the football and get three or four yards to carry there, get his offensive line going a little bit. It's hard to pass protect each and every play and have these defenders who just get to pin their ears back and rush the passer. I really like what we've seen from Will Rogers. Mm-hmm. The things that he has figured out, not getting greedy, recognizing when he has man coverage, being able to, to find the soft spots in the zones, having more receivers who understand the nuances of this offense. And it's not just kind of plug in, trying to hope that that Austin Williams is going to figure some things out because he's not a natural fit in the air raid. 
that's not to take away from Austin Williams or anything like that, but he's just the example of kind of the holdover guy who wasn't necessarily recruited to play in the air raid. The SEC West is loaded with really good quarterback play right now. I mean, think about this. The division, like, the the division might not have a bad quarterback right now. Matt Corral, Bryce Young, KJ Jefferson, Bo Nix, Max Johnson, Will Rogers, and even Zach Calzada will always have his top of the resume at Enterprise that he beat Bama. At Enterprise. He's going to get a better job than, than Enterprise. I shouldn't say that. Zach Calzada is going to be making six figures in two seconds. Again, the good people of the state of Texas will make sure that Zach Calzada is taken care of, if nothing more than so he could come into the office and tell stories about the time that he beat Bama. Mm-hmm. All right, like he's going to be taken care of. He's got, he's got six figures set up. Getting that JPW there. gig. <laughs> this was, uh, for, for Kentucky, the flashbacks to 2018 against Tennessee. After the Georgia loss, they had to be there. Mm-hmm. And it might be the difference between going to a New Year's Six Bowl and not. Now you look at the resume and you're like, eh, two best wins came against teams with four losses. Stoops is now 0-5 in Starkville. And maybe I shouldn't lock that that I shouldn't mock that line anymore when it comes out that Mississippi State is, is favored because I know Kentucky fans were like, hey, this is so disrespectful. Bad night for Kentucky. Impressive night for Mississippi State. I love both of these coaches so much. I love that they just keep having the same games. This excites me to no end. Literally, I hope both of these guys stay exactly where they are forever, just so they can play each other all the time. This being a cross-divisional rivalry is my favorite thing ever. It's chaos. The fact that, like, Mike Leach has had this, like, every year for him, we talk about is he, like, the worst team in the West, but he'll go ahead and beat, like, he'll have, like, these crazy games where he scores, like, you know, 60 points against LSU week one last year, or he'll beat A&M and just totally take them out of the SEC West discussion. Like, again, we've talked about it ad nauseum, but that win is, like, the most pivotal win in the SEC West, that they beat A&M. Cole Kubla called Mississippi State the weirdest team in college football. And, mm-hmm. and I think he's right. I think there's absolutely a case. They're such a tough team to figure out week by week. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, they beat Kentucky on the ground. like, And they're this team. Like, it's funny. And, like, Will Rogers is apparently a sophomore. He could be there until, you know, we're 30. <laughs> like, until we're old. So, like, not you're so already old. these guys. Right. Like, uh, he's, he's, he's going to be, like, so point being, like, I just hope these guys stay around forever because, yeah, it's the same. And, like, we both love Stoops. Again, not slandering him, but it's, like, this is the apex Stoop season. It's, like, you rally the troops. You beat Florida. You kind of get that ceiling game against Georgia. It's not bad. And then you go into this game. And, like you said, it's, like, they just can't beat Mississippi State. It doesn't, you know, we've talked about, you know, Moorhead and, like, Mullen and, like, all these guys. They're just totally different guys. I guess they're all offensive guys, but you get it. Uh, and, and it's, like, they, they still find a way to lose to this team when they're on this. It, we Every year we want to, we love Stoops so much, we want to be like, are they taking the leap? And the, this is always the game where we're like, this is where he's at. This is why you get disrespected if you're Kentucky, though. Yep. If you play like that on the road in a hostile environment and you shrink, you turtle, that's why you're not getting the national love. It's as simple as that. And now Kentucky goes from being like, hey, if we win this game, maybe we're like a sneaky top 10 team. Probably would have been in the top 10 had they won this football game. And instead, they have nobody to blame but themselves for this one. Again, not taking anything away from Mississippi State, who played excellent and had a lot of things that confused this Kentucky offense and put them in some of those spots. But Kentucky is now like a borderline top 25 team, probably going into these first playoff rankings. Will Rogers, 36 of 39. What is that meeting room? What is that meeting room like? 
Like, how do you give up three incompletions on 39 attempts? Again, single game SEC record for completion percentage. And it's simple. I mean, it, it's simple when you when you realize like what he's trying to do, but stopping it is a different is a different thing. And I was listening to Kentucky's announcer saying, you gotta just try and go man coverage once. And then, but the problem now is that Will Rogers is, is recognizing the way to, to beat that. And I don't need to tell an LSU fan what happens if you go man coverage against the air raid for an entire game. Is it crossing routes, Connor? <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna get a linebacker matched up on a tailback, running a wheel rod out of the backfield, and it's gonna go for 75 like it did with Kylan Hill. And then I'm um, telling my therapist about it for weeks. It's great. Anyway. <laughs> All right, let's end with this one. And then before we do some playoff stuff, um, Mizzou avoided embarrassment against Vandy. I'll be honest, I didn't watch any of this game live, but I stayed dialed into what was going on and was able to, to, to catch highlights as well and see all the coverage and stuff after SaturdayDownSouth.com. If you want to catch up on all things Mizzou and Vandy, hey, we've got you covered there as well. We are the but, nation's leading source in this football game, actually. So what, me and you may have not watched it, but someone, honestly, yes, right now is talking about this game if you want to hear about it. Yes, absolutely. At one point in the middle of the second quarter, um, I said to my guy Perry, I said, how many rushing yards do you think Vandy has against Mizzou's horrendous run defense? And he thought about it for like a solid 30 seconds. He's like, you wouldn't be asking me this if it wasn't a ridiculous number. Halfway through the second quarter, and Perry guessed 145. And I think the number was like 157. He was shockingly Jeez. close. Smart dude, Perry is. Very smart guy. But this is not the place to point out that Mizzou couldn't even hold Vandy to less than 250 rushing yards. And if not for that Hail Mary at the end of the first half to give Mizzou a lead, Vandy might have won that game um, because Mizzou beat a Power 5 team for the first time this year. Connor Bazelak got banged up down the stretch. Fortunately for Mizzou, Tyler Beatty exists. This guy is having one of the most underappreciated seasons, and I, I kind of just think it's 2021 Kevin Harris. That That's what he is. Mm-hmm what Kevin Harris was last year, where I think Kevin Harris, did he have three games with at least 200 yards? I don't remember. But if it wasn't, it was close to that. That is what Tyler Beatty has. Uh, career high, 254 rushing yards. He had 39 total touches for 294 yards. Pretty impressive stuff. Yes, this is against Vandy, still. The dude is is built like a man. tank. And I feel, I, I feel so bad for calling that guy small coming into the year. Because I don't know if you saw the post-game presser, yoked. Yoked out of his mind in a way that like was was very noticeable. And you see it when he's got, you know, he's got like the sleeveless shirt on. You're just like, oh, he, he is built like an absolute tank. He had this moment in the post-game presser where there was this reporter with a thick Scottish accent who asked him a question. And Beatty, like, he like freaked out and was all about this Scottish accent. Like he's just standing there, arms are pumping, and he wants to find out more about this Scottish accent. It was a cute little moment, but um, Tyler Brady's really good. I've, I've decided that after watching him just run through defenses left and right. But what is still obviously clear, Eli Drinkwitz gonna have to overhaul that defensive staff because with all due respect to Michael Wright and true freshman Patrick Smith, who's like Vandy's third string running back who still found a way to have a big day, Listen, that guy's Shouldn't putting be his education bike. first. That's a, that's a guy who's serious about school. Patrick Smith, yeah. the fancy yes, third string running back. Very much so. Uh, if you're Mizzou, that, that shouldn't be a nail-biter. It just shouldn't be. Uh, that shouldn't be what it takes to get your first 
SEC win. And I, I that play at the end of the first half was just, I mean, it was so bad on Vandy's part to let Kiki Chisholm somehow get behind all of those different guys and just kind of go, whoop. It was like the adult playing with the kids in 500 in the pool. You're like, okay, what are, what are we doing here? This is, this is going to get old real quick. But anyway, yeah, if you watch that game, and I, I, didn't get, oh, I didn't look up the, the total attendance number. I was going to do that. Will, do you want to look up the total attendance number of this game real quick? Uh, where would I even find that? You could probably find it on like the, the team site. The, so like, um, so Vandy is like Vandy's official website would have that if you go to like the box score page on their team. For anybody that ever wants to look up this stuff, because sometimes home uh, like announced paid attendance is a fun thing to be able to to look up. But I there was an image that they showed where it it felt like when a, a high school state championship is played in a college stadium. And you're like, oh, hey, there's only so much you're going to be able to fill. Everybody trickles down to the bottom. Nobody's sitting up high because why would you in a game like that? Mm-hmm. And the angles of this game were rough. They were very, very rough. Do we got we got a number on that yet? No, they apparently are not posting these. Okay, fair enough. I don't blame them. We'll skip that. We'll, we'll, I, was, we'll I was about to say, we'll hit up Dan. This is the definition <laughs> of bad radio. <laughs> we'll circle Just back to searching that. intensive numbers. Okay, okay. Somebody's going to tweet at us, Vandy's official attendance number for this game, and we're going to feel better about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Whatever the case. Let's talk about some things that are in the very opposite direction. Predicting playoff rankings. First show, ranking show, Tuesday night, I believe it's 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. The only thing I know is that Georgia's going to be number one. (laughs) That's it. Everything else, uh, we'll see. So here's how I have the top 10 breaking down, and I'll go in reverse order. They like to do that every once in a while, I love that. When when it's the most obvious thing, like mm-hmm. they'll, they'll probably just, once they get to the top 10, they'll be like, and Georgia's number one, and then they'll work their way back, so we'll, we'll mirror that, we'll follow the exact same thing. Okay. And this is just predicting, keep in mind. This is not saying what I think they should be. This is me trying to get into the mind of the selection committee, saying, here's, here's what they're going to do based on past behavior, all that stuff. So at one, Georgia, two, Oklahoma, three, Michigan State, four, Cincinnati, five, Bama, we'll talk about that in a sec, six, Ohio State, seven, Oregon, eight, Michigan, nine, Notre Dame, 10, Wake Forest. Undefeated Wake Forest, might add. Golly, that's still happening now. (laughs) They won't do it. But I actually, if you look at the quality wins, Auburn's got more quality wins, and Baylor also has more quality wins than Wake Forest. Um, but probably going to give the undefeated Power Five team the benefit of the doubt and put them in the top ten to at least make them feel like they have a chance, even though they don't have a loss to give with the way that the ACC has played out. What I am really interested in is a couple of things: the selection committee's decision with Michigan State and Bama. Kind of that like three through five sort of range. Three through six, really. Michigan State, who beat Michigan as in pretty, I don't want to say convincing fashion, but doing it with the way that they've done it all year, with Kenneth Walker scoring a billion, billion touchdowns. Breaking Man, that game tackles. was electric. Did you get to see any of that? I did. That was on in the suite, and we watched. We were watching like the, the back and forth at the end there. And good for Mel Tucker, man. That, that guy is, is all of a sudden at the top of every national coach of the year 
watch list, whatever the case may be. That's a good football team. I, I totally discounted Michigan State coming into the year and thought eh, maybe seven and five type of year, but the way that they've overhauled that team with, with transfers and whatnot is really impressive. So like Michigan State is still sitting there undefeated. They just beat a top 10 Michigan team. We'll wait and see how it plays out for the Big Ten Championship, but you probably have to start them in the top four, right? You have to start them ahead of one loss teams like Bama, like Ohio State, like Oregon. I would think, right? That's, yeah, that's I mean, what we've seen from the section committee in the past, at least. They were they were eight and Michigan was six. So like, yeah, you gotta think. I mean, if it's a top 10 matchup and you win it, like I'm, they didn't blow them out. It was a good game. I, I really like, honestly, hate to say it, like what I saw in Michigan out of that game too, don't really think they're frauds until they play Ohio State. You know what I'm saying? Like this isn't, this wasn't that game for them. Like they, that was a really good back and forth game. Yeah, I think if you're Michigan State, like I'll put it to you like this, exactly what you said. If, if you're Michigan State and you're undefeated and you've done everything right and like brought in all these transfers, if, like, Bama is ahead of you, I'm furious. I'm a Michigan State fan because they're undefeated. Agreed. And they've done every single thing right. You know, like, time will tell. But that's the whole point of these, like, rankings and why we can kind of get frustrated by them is, like, you got to look at what's what's been done and what's been done. They, I mean, their resume is phenomenal. And sharing the, the mutual opponent with Bama, the Miami game, where Michigan State had to go to Miami ah. and take that for what it is. Wonder if that plays a factor in that, if, if that's something that's discussed, if we see some of these side-by-side -side breakdowns. Because I always say, look, this isn't about just saying, well, if you line them up on a neutral site, who would be favored to win? This isn't about that at this point. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, in my opinion, it should, be, it should be about resumes, it should be about teams that you beat, how you looked within those specific games. Because if we had everything figured out, we would just play these games on paper. And I know David Pollock likes to think that he has every single team figured out of which team is better than this team. He's like, well, what does the eye test say? It's like, well, if you had asked me the eye test for Michigan State coming into the year, I would have said that's a 7-5 and five football team. But they played football, and now they are not. Right. <laughs> now they are much better. That's the way that that works. I am pre-triggered about Ohio State. Mm -hmm. They got an all right win on Saturday night, except for the fact that Penn State had just lost to Illinois entering Saturday. And in the best game in football history. Undisputed best game in football history. Not even close. Mm -hmm. Not a prisoner of the moment with that take at all. It was a grind to beat Penn State for Ohio State. And that was the thing that I kept saying coming into this is like, what are we doing crowning Ohio State for beating Maryland, Rutgers, Indiana, and Tulsa and saying that they've all of a sudden figured things out? Like when Joel Klatt said that they're the number two team in the country, I just cackled. I'm like, all right, so we're, we're, doing, we're doing this now. We're, we're trying to say that Ohio State is, that the loss to Oregon didn't happen and that beating up on three cellar dwellers in the Big Ten East all of a sudden makes you the number two team in the country. That's preseason confirmation bias. That is all that is. That is, that is not based on resume whatsoever. You can say the offense with Travion Henderson is, and CJ Stroud is taking off and they maybe have the best one-two punch at receiver in the country with Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. But at the same time, like, Let's actually see what this defense can do against an offense that doesn't totally suck. And Penn State's offense might just totally suck. So I'm still not even totally sold on Ohio State. So if uh, what I'm worried about is that the selection committee could put Ohio State ahead of Cincinnati, which would be a terrible sign for the Bearcats. It would be terrible. If a game against Indiana is your argument for Ohio State, Sorry, but that's such a small piece of this. Like the mutual, like Indiana went, Indiana like had Cincinnati, like had a lead against Cincinnati in the fourth quarter. And some people are gonna look at that and say, well, that's why you have to rank Ohio State ahead of Cincinnati. Even though Cincinnati has the beg better win than Ohio State and is undefeated, <laughs> by the way. They sure do, Remember? Brother. 
And if your argument against Cincinnati is, well, they struggled against Tulane. I'll say, hey, remember when Oklahoma struggled even more against Tulane and that game was in Norman? Tulane, like, the best 1-7 in seven team in football history. Oh, gosh. It's going to be a total mess. And in reality, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's Georgia and everyone else at this point. Right. I can make so many arguments against teams compared to four teams <laughs> at this stage. I think you kind of have to reward the Michigan States of the world. I think mm -hmm. even though Oklahoma has been ugly, at least they are an undefeated Power 5 team at this point. And that has to count for something. And if we're going to discount losses, then I, I and in some cases I would say, look, that 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 should that should be something that we should be able to look kind of past and it's game control and these other things. But at the same time, it's like, well, Ohio State hasn't exactly been the best with they weren't the best in game control in the first part of the year as well. And now if if Oklahoma has kind of figured some of these things out as well, I'm just not willing to say that like, oh, yeah, we need to put all these one loss teams ahead of Oklahoma. So it's a mess. It's. Oh, Tuesday is going to be just a bloodbath. Um, and, and it's also because we have teams like Michigan State and Wake Forest who nobody in their right mind thought would be unbeaten. Right. And here they are going into November unbeaten. So does the selection committee put five one-loss teams ahead of Wake Forest who has their best win is at three-loss Virginia? I don't know. I don't know, man. I have no I idea. Mean, so, like, the thing that kills me about this stuff is, like, <clears throat> college football more than any other sport since it's so subjective is, like, you can get married to a take in the preseason, and there's nothing to incentivize you from ever breaking off of that take. If you're a national media guy, you can get people in your mentions or whatever, but if you're a person who's like big enough, you just don't even care. And it's like, yeah, like if you're a voter, if you're one of these people in the selection committee where you're just like, oh, I don't take Team X seriously, like Michigan State or whatever. The thing that kills me is it's like, okay, if you don't take Michigan State or Cincinnati seriously, why do these other big name teams need your help? Like that, that's what always killed me about the whole selection committee process. Like, do you really think that Ohio State or Alabama need your help? Do, do you think that without you, selection committee guy, that those teams would be unable? They wouldn't get a fair shake? It's like, okay, you think Michigan State's a fraud? Let them play the rest of their season. I'm sure they'll have to play Ohio State. I'm sure that like Cincinnati is gonna struggle against somebody. Like the, the concept of like, oh, we gotta protect these name brand teams like Notre Dame every year. And it's like, no, dude. Like if you really think these teams are better, let them play the games. Exactly what you just said. It's like. No, like, we should put the teams with the best resume in the front. Radical idea. And then if these other teams that have losses and better talent and better name brands, yes. if they are Agreed. better at the end of the year, we'll be able to look at the end of the year and say, hey, yeah, they got that one loss, but they won their conference, they did X, Y, and Z. Like, they don't need your help, especially right now. That's why I think they'll actually have, I think they'll have Cincinnati at that number four spot. Mm -hmm. Because that, that kind of doesn't necessarily force the selection committee to have to answer that difficult question already of what happens if Cincinnati wins out versus what happens if Ohio State wins out. We know if Ohio State wins out, it, it would be in over Cincinnati, but it's gonna start off ranked ahead of them. Yeah. Same with Michigan State, same with Alabama. But at the same time, you also have to look at this and say, well, what, what do we know based on what we've seen so far? And can we let the rest of this just kind of play out? Because it will, this, this stuff always sorts itself out. It always does. And the Big Ten East beating up on itself is going to sort out some of this as well. It's just going to happen. Shout but, out Iowa, Wisconsin. Oh my gosh. <laughs> can you can you think about Iowa's offense and how much we would just blast it on a weekly basis if they were in the SEC? 
the disgusting Connor's face right now. I love I love you being Sunshine Florida, Connor. I love that you're just <laughs> slandering Ohio State, slandering these horrible offenses now. You've seen the light. You don't have to be capping for the brand. And that's what I love about this podcast. I try and call it like I see it. I really do. It, and I was... I banged the drum for Ohio State in the past, and then I'm, in other years I've said, "Look, you can't put Ohio State into the playoffs." Like I don't, I don't have anything for or against them. I coming into this year, I didn't necessarily have a whole lot of takes about Cincinnati. Yeah, picking them to go to the playoff, I'm I'm more interested on a week to week basis. But at the same time, it's like, well, if that Notre Dame win is going to continue to hold up, and that it, it has Notre Dame beat UNC on Saturday night, then that, that's one of the things that we have to consider with, with some of this context. But I try and call it like I see it. We're going to have a lot of playoff breakdown stuff with the midweek pod because there's going to be so much to dissect. And we'll probably rehash on some of the stuff that we just hit on just now. But Tuesday, set your DVRs um, probably 15 minutes before they announce the actual rankings because they want to just hold you like that. That's what they I'll do. be checking on Twitter. That's that's the way to do it. Don't watch the selection show. Just just catch up on Twitter. And Look, you got to do it. You got to do it. I don't got to do it. One of us will see all the nonsense. I will see a list on Twitter. You, I'm not getting paid to do that. Read all of our takes on SaturdayDownSouth.com, SaturdayTradition.com as well. We're going to have all of that stuff covered. We're going to have a first-time guest on the pod this week. That is the plan. Um, somebody that you've seen a little bit more on your TVs throughout this year. Um, so good to be able to, to get this person on the pod, something I've been trying to do for a little while now. So if you have not, leave us a five-star review, like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday List Forever, wherever you get your podcast. New one out on Peter Warwick. Awesome, awesome stuff from Matt Hayes. Join the Facebook group here named Red On Air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.